enter a nexus of science, violence, and nonsense, where fake news, pseudoscience, and weaponized stupidity meet full-contact fact-checking and peer-reviewed ass-kicking. And as always, no bullshit allowed. Recorded live at Bullshito headquarters in Austin, Texas, this is the Art of Fighting BS podcast. Man, you come right out of a comic book. Chocolate lines up planetarily with the sun. Chocolate is an octave of sun energy. Brain chips in the trips. They get the trips. Special vaccines that are really nanotech that already re-engineer their brains. Sure, on some planet, your style is quite impressive, but your weak link is, this is Earth. Hey, well, I get to learn karate. Karate? The Dane Cook of martial arts? No. We do not need that many vaccines. What does the scouter say about his power level? It's over 9,000! We have a saying back home that if you're coming on, come on. Keep the yoga mat out of your mouth and on the floor. You know friends and family that eat yoga mat? Oh, we're in the parking lot. Yeah, we're in the parking lot, motherfucker. Get out of a body bag! Yeah! All right. On this episode of the Bullshito Podcast, we have Mark Neely, Vice President of Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute, to discuss qualified immunity. And it's a topic that we've mentioned before on the podcast about police shootings. But it's one that, sadly, a lot of people still aren't aware that there's something to even be concerned about. So, buckle up. Here we go. All right, so I am extremely excited to introduce our, our guest today. This is probably one of the biggest guests we've had on the show so far. Um, Clark Neely, he's an attorney, writing extensively on the topics of criminal law and qualified immunity, the vice president of criminal justice at the Cato Institute. Um, Clark, anything else that the viewers or the listeners should know? Uh, no, I'm a, I, I, I'm a constitutional litigator uh, for more than 20 years. I was one of the lawyers that brought the uh, uh, DC versus Heller gun case and vindicated the Second Amendment. And uh, like it sounds like most of you, I'm also a fellow martial artist. I've been studying martial arts for 20 years. Uh, first on in uh, Taekwondo, Judo, and Aikido. Wow. So. The, the topic, and you might be interested in some of our other ones, we did one on the, uh, the Second Amendment, actually, uh, one of our first ones, I believe. Um, we're, this one, we're talking about qualified immunity, and this is something that we're obviously hearing quite a bit about because of the horrible events in Minneapolis. Um, it's, it's come up in the media recently, but I, I'm seeing that a lot of people don't understand it. Um, Clark, what do people need to know about qualified immunity? Yeah, so... Basically, when you have a, a, a situation where some people are empowered to use force against others, and that really is the essence of government, uh, it is empowering some people to use force against others uh, to enforce laws, uh, you have to decide what amount of accountability will come with that responsibility. Uh, obviously, the, the authority to use power against other people, to use force against other people, um, is uh, a significant responsibility. And then the question is, well, what level of accountability will you have um, for, for the potential abuse of, of that power. And qualified immunity is a legal doctrine that limits the ability of people to sue police officers for the misuse of the power that they have. 
And to, to kind of just put it in context, there are really only three accountability mechanisms. If you have a police officer or other government official who you think has abused their power, uh, who's violated your rights in some ways, the first one is a criminal prosecution. That is that a prosecutor can bring criminal charges against that officer or other government official for violating your rights. That is, for a variety of reasons we can get into, that is extraordinarily unusual. And it really only happens when you have a situation like we have with the, um, the killing of George Floyd in, in Minneapolis, where um, there's essentially like a viral video that has increased the political pressure to the point where the prosecutor really can't do anything else. The uh, second avenue of potential accountability is internal accountability mechanisms. We're talking about internal affairs, citizens review boards, et cetera. Um, there is a broad consensus among experts that those are almost completely ineffectual. They really, uh, they provide a window dressing, but nothing more. And that leaves the third and final uh, avenue of accountability, which is the ability of a citizen to sue a government official, including police officers, in court for violating their civil rights. And that's where qualified immunity comes into play because it is a legal doctrine that was invented out of whole cloth by the Supreme Court about a half a century ago uh, that radically altered the level of accountability uh, for government officials. What Congress decided back in 1871 was that, uh, and this is in our primary civil rights law, commonly referred to as Section 1983, which provides quite simply that any state actor, including police, shall be liable for the deprivation of any right. Let me say that again, because it's really important. Any state actor shall be liable to the person injured for the deprivation of any right. And the way the Supreme Court changed that law, and it really was just a naked uh, example of judicial policymaking, they, um, they judicially amended the statute completely illegitimately. What they did was they inserted two words, clearly established before the word rights. So now, Contrary to the expressed intent of Congress, you can only sue a police officer or other government official for the violation of any clearly established right. And that, those two words, clearly established, do an astonishing amount of work because what they require is that before you can sue a police officer, you have to find an identical case in the same jurisdiction where, where a police officer did the exact same thing to someone else with nearly identical facts and the courts have already ruled that that is not permissible. If you can't find that case, so up in, up in Minneapolis, if George Floyd's family cannot find a case where a police officer knelt on a guy's cervical spine for, for nine minutes until he passed out and kept his knee there until he, until he lost consciousness and ultimately died, if that exact same fact pattern is not already on the books, then that case will get tossed on qualified immunity grounds. That's the, that's the way that defense operates, and it goes way too far. It absolves, absolves police of blatant misconduct um, in a huge number of cases. And I, I contend that fundamentally it's, it's most damaging to police because what it does is it, it infantilizes police officers um, and holds them to a vastly lower standard of accountability than the rest of us. And that is not a good thing to have that kind of a double standard because it causes people to lose faith and trust and confidence in the institution of law enforcement. And I think that's what we've been seeing playing out for the last week. So um, I want to want to jump in on that that clearly established bit. Um, in, in my head, I think of of cats where the FBI put a listening device outside a phone booth that was later, you know, 
a practice that up until that time had been routine and commonplace and greenlit by the courts. And all of a sudden, the Supreme Court flip-flopped and changed and said, no, we can't do that anymore. That's that's a Fourth Amendment issue. Well, would it be fair to hold those particular FBI agents personally and civilly liable for something that really nobody had seen coming? Right. And that's an entirely fair question. I have two responses to it. The first one is that when you ask a question like that, would it be fair to do X? It, it's, it kind of points you in the right direction, which is that's a decision for a legislative body. That is not a decision for the courts. The court's job is to interpret and apply the law. It is up to legislatures to decide what the standard should be and whether it's fair. So the first point is you may well be right that, that, that under those circumstances, it would not be appropriate to hold law enforcement officers accountable, but that is a decision that is up to the legislature. And so what happened with qualified immunity is that the courts usurped that responsibility. They usurped that role by taking it upon themselves to decide what should be the appropriate standard of liability. So for the first point is, regardless of whether it's a good idea or a bad idea, the qualified immunity doctrine is wholly illegitimate because it was put in place by a branch um, that is not charged with that responsibility and whose business it is not. Uh, and they overrode the will of Congress, which chose a different standard, one of strict liability. But put a pin in it. The origin of qualified immunity is actually exactly where you started off. Um, the basic origin of qualified immunity is that there was a case where some police officers enforced uh, a, a law involving polling places, involving voting, that was later determined to be unconstitutional. And the courts essentially said, you know, it really wouldn't be fair to, to, to allow these guys to be held liable for enforcing a law that was at the time perceived to be valid. It wasn't until later that it was struck down. The problem is that qualified immunity now goes far beyond that and really has turned into something close to a near zero accountability uh, uh, program for police. And it is routine, routine for courts in qualified immunity cases to hold that, A, yes, your rights were violated, no question about it, but B, we don't already have a case on the book, so we're going to give the cops, in this case, a free pass. That, I would submit, is, uh, is, is not a fair, not a reasonable uh, policy, even if it was a policy that was any business of the courts to enact, which it wasn't. This was always up to Congress, and the courts really usurped uh, the legislative responsibility here and took it upon themselves to implement a policy that they thought was better than the one Congress implemented. That is not an appropriate role for the judiciary. So would it be so, fair to say that when sorry for uh, would it be fair to say that when it's applied in a very abusive manner that it's basically a get out of jail free card? It would, and I, I just tweaked that a little bit. I call it a get out of responsibility free card because you know, look, all of us have worked in 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 various kinds of jobs. I'm a lawyer. My sister's a doctor. I've got friends who have all kinds of different you know jobs. But the the baseline is this. If you do your job negligently or you do your job in a way that doesn't live up to the professional standards of that particular vocation and you hurt somebody and you cause somebody an injury, you are responsible to them for that injury. You must compensate them for that injury. There are very few vocations where that is not true and law enforcement is absolutely at the top of that list and that's not right. So why... Why do these rights seem to be clearly, clearly established? Or I guess I say we all have access to the Constitution. We can Google it and read it ourselves. Um, for people without law degrees, 
why why do these need to be clearly defined by the courts if, if all of our rights are right there on that piece of paper? Well, because rights um, are, are basically defined at a relatively high level of generality. And so to say that it is unconstitutional to use unreasonable force against somebody doesn't really tell you what exactly that means. Can you, for example, use a chokehold? Can you ever use a chokehold? What other kinds of restraints can you use or not use? Under what circumstances may you use lethal force against a suspect? These are all questions that are not easily answered by reference to the bare text of the Fourth Amendment, which states that, that people have a right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure. And, and seizure um, includes the unreasonable use of force. So it is... It is accurate to say that that you can't just look to the text of the Constitution and and automatically know as a as a police officer or other government official exactly what you can or can't do. And the kind of the fiction behind qualified immunity is that uh, police officers and other government officials in their off time um, stay up late at night reading judicial opinions so that they can keep current on exactly what those broad brushstroke rights mean at the level of specificity, and that police are staying up late at night uh, reading court opinions so they can know exactly when they can use lethal force, exactly when they can use certain restraining techniques, and exactly when they can search a car and when they can't. And of course, that's a complete fiction. That's not what happens. Uh, and this really is, as we as we covered earlier, a get-out-of-responsibility-free uh, card for police officers that virtually no other profession enjoys. So, uh, so I, oh, I, have, I have I have a couple of quick questions. So uh, you you mentioned that um, I think the words that you were using were that uh, this doctrine was kind of fashioned out of whole cloth, and uh, you know I think um, you know both sides of the aisle have had some uh, pretty um, interesting opinions about legislating from the bench. So my curiosity, first of all, is how, how did this doctrine come into play in the first place? Like, historically speaking, when, when did this happen? Why, why are we in this situation where we have this mess? Right. So up until um, the, basically the Reconstruction era, there was really no mechanism by which uh, a citizen could, could hold a state actor accountable. And it wasn't until the adoption of what was then called the Enforcement Act, also known as the Ku Klux Klan Act uh, of 1871, that, that Congress created a mechanism by which you could sue a state actor, meaning a police officer or other uh, uh, you know, state, state official in federal court. So it, well, it wasn't until 1871 that we really even had to uh, you know, sort of develop a theory of who could be held liable uh, when. Um, and for a period of time, there was basically a kind of a, a lack of, of clarity about who you could sue and under what circumstances. And it wasn't until the latter half of the 20th century that that began to shake out. And uh, when, I, when I say shake out, I mean that we began to get a kind of a clearer picture of sort of what your rights are under the Bill of Rights and, and, and when they do and don't apply. And it was then that people began, um, uh, you know, suing police officers for things like looking in the trunk of your car when you did not consent and they didn't have a warrant. And it was right around that time that the Supreme Court uh, decided that they would sort of tighten up this, uh, this Section 1983 standard. And what, where they started off, I alluded to earlier, was just what we call a kind of a, a very narrow good faith standard. In other words, if a police officer was enforcing a law that was then thought to be constitutional and only later determined to be unconstitutional, then we're going to give that person immunity from suit because they were acting in good faith. 
There was no way they, were, they could know that the law was later going to be struck down. And that actually seems pretty reasonable. I'm not sure it's a faithful interpretation of the statute, but I think it is a reasonable policy to choose, even though I don't think it's really the business of the courts um, to, to, to do policy. But what happened is that the courts do what they so often do, which was that they yielded to their impulse to be fundamentally government favoring. That is probably the most important thing to understand about our courts is that they are relentlessly government favoring. They are constantly tipping the, the playing field in favor of the government. And that's exactly what they did with qualified immunity. So they started with a pretty reasonable and fair minded idea, which is let's not allow uh, you know, government officials to be sued for things that were at the time lawful. And they just kept pushing it and pushing it and pushing it and expanding it to the point where they really did create a, du a double standard where police are not liable for things that you absolutely would be liable for. And that's not defensible in my judgment. So <clears throat> qualified immunity, right? We, the courts started this to help prevent officers from being bankrupted. Let's say we get the, I don't want to say right, but the wrong set of facts that actually turn out to have a precedent case on point so there's no qualified immunity and an officer's held civilly liable. Are these officers really paying this out of their pocket? Are they going bankrupt from these judgments? No, this is an absolutely preposterous justification for qualified immunity and it's completely divorced from reality. So there are two reasons why that is. Uh, the first is that virtually all police officers are indemnified for even deliberate acts of misconduct. Um, there's a there's a, a law review article in in uh, NYU Law Review from 2014, um, in which a professor named Joanna Schwartz uh, did a, a a deep dive on civil damages payouts, and what she determined was that 99.98 percent of all dollars paid out, whether through through settlement or jury verdicts. 99.98% of all civil damages payouts come from the municipality or the department and not the individual officer. And by the way, that of course means us, the taxpayers. So we, the taxpayers, are paying 99.98% of all damages awards uh, against individual police officers. So that's point one. And then point two is, of course, even if individual police officers were responsible for their own damages, which they should be, all they would have to do would be to purchase professional liability insurance, just like doctors, lawyers, accountants, and, and others. And uh, I wrote an article actually not too long ago in which I pointed out that if you took all of the money that a given municipality like Chicago or New York, take all the money that they pay out in civil damages awards and, and use that money to provide an allowance to police officers to purchase professional liability insurance, you would almost certainly enable them to completely cover themselves so they would never have to go out of pocket and you would probably save money in the end. So it's a kind of a win-win, low-hanging fruit that for reasons that I can't even, you know, that boggle the imagination, we have not bothered to implement yet. Uh, but that would, per that would really uh, do a great job of aligning incentives. It would bring the power of insurance companies who are wonderful at identifying risk into play. Uh, and it would the best thing it would do mm -hmm is that just like with drivers and bad doctors, if you required police to purchase liability insurance, what would happen is that the good police officers would see their premiums go down. And by the way, I would allow them to pop pocket the difference. If you, if you represent less of a risk and therefore you pay a lower premium, I'm going to let you put that in your pocket, the, the difference. If you're a bad police officer and you represent more of a risk, your premium is going to be more expensive and I'm going to make you pay that extra price out of your pocket. So you lose money. And the best part of it is 
that the, the, the officers who generate the highest number of claims will see their premiums go up just like a bad driver and eventually they will become uninsurable and therefore unemployable. And what could be better than that? That is a perfect outcome. That's that's what I was. You have just ruined. That is yeah. That's fantastic. (laughs) I just ruined the entire buddy cop genre. (laughs) The entire buddy cop genre just went down in flames. (laughs) (laughs) So you you know, bad doctors can get priced out of practice. Bad lawyers can get priced out of practice because they can't carry their malpractice insurance. What? I don't want to speculate, and I don't want to force you to speculate, but we look at the murder of George Floyd, and that police officer, in his 19 years, had a history of use of force complaints, of misconduct, complaint after complaint after complaint. Are, are you saying that that if if we went to this insurance route, it's possible that that officer would have been priced out of a job? It is, um, and and here's the beauty of it: that guy, at a certain point in his career might have been salvageable. Maybe he was not a fundamentally bad person or a fundamentally um, inept or unfit officer. Maybe if, so imagine, so as I mentioned earlier, insurance companies are astonishingly good at identifying risk. What if it turns out that there's a particular kind of incident or a particular kind of call where this particular officer loses control or has a hard time you know, behaving professionally? What if an insurance company was able to flag that and say, look, either don't send this guy out on those calls anymore or make sure he's got a sergeant with him that can you know, help to defuse the situation. Maybe with the right mentoring and the right accommodations, that officer could have been a good police officer one day and stop generating so many use of force claims. But that never happened for whatever reason. And, and you know, look, I've been a lawyer for coming up on 25 years. The number of complaints that I have against me for for my professional conduct are zero, zero complaints. And I think that's true of most people and most professionals and frankly, also most police officers. But when you've got an officer who has generated 18 different complaints over the course of his career, that is a red flag. And if you are putting that person in the position where they have to pay the increased costs of their liability insurance for every one of those claims that's determined to be at least potentially meritorious, that's going to get their attention and it's either going to provoke a change in behavior, a change in guidance and mentoring, or it's going to price them out of the vocation. All of those are better responses than what we have now. So they one can take thing you anger said anger management classes, like uh, drivers at you know driver safety course, you get a discount, right? You, they could take anger management classes. There's a bunch of different ways you could approach that. Exactly right. Exactly. So you had said, you know, at one point in his career, that officer may have been salvageable. That, that brings me to this point. Seeking reform of qualified immunity isn't about hating cops. Right? It, no, it's, it's, it, it's exactly right. It's quite the contrary. Um, I, have, I have police officers in my family. My next door neighbor is retired D.C. homicide detective. Um, I do not. I am not an anti-law enforcement person. On the contrary, I respect the ones that do it right, and I know that, they, that, that, that it's a hard thing sometimes to, to walk the line and do it right. What pains me is to see them get tarred with the same brush as the genuinely bad apples in that vocation. And we all know how hard it is to get rid of genuinely bad police officers. We know there are the police unions. We know that oftentimes the, the, the leadership's hands are tied. Um, and if you talk, I mean, I'm sure you all have, if you have friends that are police officers that have been in the business for a while, 
in my experience, almost inevitably, they express a great deal of frustration about having to work in the same vocation uh, with people who are not fit to wear the badge. But for whatever reason, they not only have to work with them, but sometimes they even have to cover for them or risk the loss of their job. And I think that puts them in a terrible position. And I think there's a non-trivial number of police out there who would be who would be uh, overjoyed uh, if there were a mechanism uh, for purging the the relative. And I do believe the relatively small handful of bad apples. I think they know that it would make uh, police officers more respected uh, and better able to do their job because the community would would once again have greater faith and trust in them than they do now. And and really too, I mean, it seems like the courts are so married to this idea of qualified immunity to protect police officers. Um, in, in my experience as a lawyer, as a, as a firearms or law enforcement firearms trainer, um, police officers don't know about qualified immunity until the lawsuit's already filed. They don't know. They don't have an understanding of it. Like this. And we have a lot of police officers who listen to our to our podcast, and I'm sure some of them are going to learn a thing or two just from this. Um, how much in, in your experience do do you see police officers depending on qualified immunity and, and it being the reason why they're in the profession, like some Supreme Court and, and circuit court opinions make it sound like. Yeah, so this actually has been studied and there is no strong evidence that awareness of uh, civil damages exposure uh, plays any role in, in the, the way that police make decisions and conduct themselves in the field. Um, that is one of the rationales that the Supreme Court relies on uh, for enforcing this qualified immunity doctrine, uh, but it's a complete fantasy. It has no basis in reality. There's not a shred of empirical or scientific evidence to support it. Um, it's literally just something that nine justices, um, who frankly probably never experienced anything more than a traffic stop, uh, just pulled out of thin air as a kind of rationalization uh, for this policy. But again, there's not a shred of empirical evidence to support it. And on the contrary, um, the evidence uh, tends to suggest that in the moment, uh, police officers are uh, motivated and guided by uh, a variety of other uh, dynamics and considerations other than their potential exposure to civil liability, which appears to play uh, roughly zero role in their decision-making in the field, contrary to the fantasies of the U.S. Supreme Court. So we've, we've talked a lot about, about qualified immunity in this kind of abstract way. You know, it's got to be clearly established. There's the issue. There's all, there's all these issues. But I don't think I, I think that there might be still someone listening saying, well, there's nothing wrong with the way it is. Um, Clark, can you go through some of, of what you would term egregious opinions where an officer has been found to benefit from qualified immunity? Just just to give our listeners an idea of what this doctrine looks like in practice. Yeah, let me give you just a, a few and I can do them pretty quickly. So I think the one I would be most embarrassed about if I were a police officer um, there's a case out of Fresno, California, which is the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in the federal court system. And the allegations in that case, and we have to take them at face value at this stage because there hasn't been a trial, but the allegations are that police were executing a valid search warrant on a residence. And in the course of executing the warrant, one of the police officers noticed uh, a bunch of uh, currency and, and gold coins. The, the homeowner was a coin collector. And the allegation in the complaint, which again, we have to credit at this stage, is that the police officer simply helped himself to $225,000 worth of currency and coin, just put it in his pocket, 
not related to the investigation, not, you know, uh, didn't put it in a bag, you know, and, and, and check it into evidence, just literally stole $225,000 uh, from this residence while executing a search warrant. The owner sued the police officer for, for you know, for conversion, which is a tort, and the, the federal courts, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, threw the case out on qualified immunity grounds, and I'm not making this up. Here's the rationale. The rationale was, we all know that theft is immoral, but we don't have a case on point that specifically tells police officers not to steal personal property while executing a search warrant in a private residence. Bunch of wusses. Like, like, how do you... Uh, that's upsetting to me, that you would have a panel of judges. Was this on bank, or was this... Whatever. No, that one. That was a three-judge panel. But but guess what? They they uh, appealed that decision up to the Supreme Court. They filed what's called a writ of certiorari, trying to get the Supreme Court to take the case. And a former acting solicitor general, one of the most prominent lawyers in the country, Neil Katyal, represented the homeowner, and the Supreme Court turned down that appeal and allowed that lower court ruling to stand. I'll wow. give you another. I'll give you another example. Well, uh, let me let me ask you yep. one one quick question about that case. Yep. Well, there's a case on point now. The next officer who steals two hundred and twenty five thousand dollars worth of gold bullion, I mean, he knows it's clearly it's a clearly established violation at this point, right? Incorrect. You might think so, but it gets worse. So up until the mid nineteen eighties. The rule was that when somebody sues a police officer for something like this, when you do your reasoning as a court, the first question you answer is, was there a constitutional violation, yes or no? If the answer is yes, then the next question is, was it a clearly established right, yes or no? And that's, that's the logical sequence. But guess what? The Supreme Court held in, I think it was a 1984-85 case, that judges don't have to follow that sequence. And so when you get a case like this, you don't have to answer the question whether it was a constitutional violation. You can go straight to step two and say, well, putting aside for the moment whether it was a constitutional violation, was it clearly established? Answer, no. And guess what happens? You never get a ruling on the base question, was it a constitutional violation? The law stagnates. And the next time a bunch of cops steal somebody's private property, the same exact thing's going to happen again because you didn't get a ruling on the base question. And this has been pointed out time and again that this causes the law to stagnate and it enables police con to continue engaging in the same misconduct and getting away with it time after time after time. So I, I have a question there because, <clears throat> and this was a question that I had earlier, we just didn't get to it, but so uh, the, the, the test that's being applied is that it's a clearly established right, correct? That is correct. So what about the Tenth Amendment where we have, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's the Tenth Amendment where we say that any right that is not... Um, uh, delegated, it, delegated, delegated, yeah, delegated yep. to the states or to the people. So, right. so clearly, every right that is not enumerated is belonging to the people, and so that seems to be clearly established to me. So, where's the discrepancy there? That's such a great point. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, so, 
if we kind of if we if we suddenly sort of put on our jetpack and we we ascend to like thirty thousand feet of constitutional perspective, your instinct as an American is exactly right, and it's this that the default setting in America is liberty and freedom from 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 government uh, oppression from from liberty restricting infringements, whether it's stealing your property or, or putting you in cuffs or telling you where you can or cannot stand. Your instinct as an American citizen is exactly right, and it is exactly contrary to the Supreme Court's conception of the way the Constitution orders the relationship between government and individuals. The Supreme Court's concept is that in most settings, you have to justify your exercise of liberty to the government, not the other way around. The Supreme Court's perception is that, generally speaking, when the government does something to restrict your liberty or infringe upon your rights, that they are right and you are wrong, and it is incumbent upon you to demonstrate, to find a case that, that says that you had a right to be free from the particular infringement that you're complaining about. And it's one of the most disastrous misconceptions of constitutional law in all of history. And I wrote a whole book about it. Uh, called Terms of Engagement, How Courts Should Enforce Our Constitution's Promise of Liberty and Government. But that is exactly, I mean, it, it's, it's amazing what you have to do to try to convince somebody that the Supreme Court could ever have made such an incredibly fundamental error, but they did. And they have held that, generally speaking, it's incumbent on you to justify your exercise of liberty and not upon the government to justify infringing upon it. And it's, it's absolutely grotesque, but it is the way the law is. Wow. So, okay. So, so still trying to wrap my head around this, this $225,000 theft. Is this, is this issue a limited thing or are there, do you have other examples of a, of egregious conduct that a, any person looking at it would say, this is clearly and patently wrong I being given go, a green light? I could go on all night, but let me give you one more. So there was a case in Georgia where police uh, were in pursuit of a suspect through a residential neighborhood they finally tackled them on the front yard of a family where the, um, there was a couple of neighbors that were playing. There were a bunch of kids and a bunch of adults on the front yard playing. They tackle the suspect, and they make everybody lie down in order to secure the scene. They get the suspect handcuffed, so he's restrained. Everybody else is prone out on the ground. And at that moment, the family dog emerges from, from underneath the house. He's not barking. He's not growling. He's not threatening. He's just checking out what's going on. The officer who has just handcuffed the suspect, uh, pulls his pistol and takes a shot at the dog. He misses. The dog goes back underneath the house. A couple minutes later, the dog comes out again. Once again, not barking, not threatening, just checking things out. The officer again unholsters his weapon, takes a shot at the dog. This time he misses the dog, but he hits a 10-year-old boy who is a foot and a half from him in the back of the leg, severely injuring him. And once again, the court grants qualified immunity, dismisses the civil case against the officer. Why? Because there doesn't happen to be a case on point where a cop shot at an unthreatening dog for no law enforcement purpose and injured a kid who was lying on the ground a foot and a half away from him. Because we don't have a case exactly on point, this guy gets a free pass. Wow. Okay. So what do we do about this? What, what can we do about this? We're not the nine justices on the Supreme Court. What do we do? All right, so there's two things you can do. Uh, Cato has been fighting. I work for the Cato Institute, Libertarian Think Tank. We declared war on the qualified immunity doctrine exactly one year and two months ago. On March 1st, 2018, we held a kickoff event at Cato where we said we are going to take this doctrine down one way or the other. There are two avenues. 
The first is judicial, which is convincing the Supreme Court to reverse its, uh, its precedent and eliminate qualified immunity judicially. They can and they should. And there are actually eight cases pending in front of the Supreme Court right now, where, um, including the one I just described called Corbett v. V Corbett v. Vickers. That's the one where the cop shot the kid in the back of the leg from a foot and a half away. Um, and the court has not yet decided whether to take any of those cases, but we know the issue is on its radar screen because of the way they've been handling uh, all of the filings in these cases. And, we, and our next opportunity to uh, find out whether they're going to take one uh, is this Monday. So stay tuned for Monday. If the Supreme Court uh, basically chickens out and refuses to clean up its own mess, then Congress can fix it. And because this is not a constitutional doctrine, but purports to be a statutory interpretation, Congress can actually amend the statute to clarify that there is no qualified immunity. And there's um, tremendous interest right now on both sides of the aisle in, in, in uh, passing legislation to accomplish that result. And in fact, uh, Justin Amash uh, from Michigan just uh, uh, announced that he's dropping a bill on qualified immunity. And uh, let's just say that I have reason to believe he will not be alone. So this is, this is a problem that can be fixed by the judiciary who created the mess and should be the ones that, to fix it. Or if the Supreme Court punks out and won't do it, then the, then the Congress can do it. Wow. Um, fantastic. Um, so, okay. So how do we, how do our listeners follow this progress, right? I'm sure that, that you, do you have a Twitter? Can they follow you on Twitter? What, how do they follow you and how do they keep apprised of these efforts to reform qualified immunity? Yeah, thanks for that. Um, and you should. You should absolutely stay on top of this issue. Uh, so my Twitter handle is conlawwarrior, all one word. I didn't come up with that, but it's a good one. Conlawwarrior. I, I tweet about this constantly. And then the other thing you can look at is Cato has a dedicated website uh, to qualified immunity. It's called unlawfulshield.com. Unlawfulshield.com. If you Google unlawfulshield, it will take you right there. And everything that's important, every single development that's important, all the questions you might have, all the cases you might be interested in, we've got them collected on that website. You will have a PhD in qualified immunity if you go and read everything on that website. I think if someone read everything on that website, they'd uh, lose a little bit of faith in humanity. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I hear you, but the good news is not only is this situation uh, one that we can fix. Look, I don't know. I don't know how to fix uh, the national deficit. I don't know how to fix health care. I don't know how to fix entitlement spending, but I know how to fix uh, or at least substantially repair the relationship between law enforcement and, and the communities they, they police. And that is to solve this misperception uh, that there is a double standard between police and everybody else. Once we, once everybody has confidence that we are all being held to the same standard, I think that uh, the relationship between police and the communities that are most in need of law enforcement will begin to heal, uh, and people will once again have faith uh, and confidence in the integrity of law enforcement. Uh, and the biggest and most important step we can take in that direction is the elimination of this qualified immunity doctrine. Wow, great, great points. Uh, John, Lyndon, you guys got anything else? No, uh, you know, thank you very much, Clark. This has been uh, fascinating. I, I really appreciate you spending the time to educate us on, on some of these issues. Well, I can thank only you. add thank you so much. Yeah, thank you guys. I really appreciate you having me on. I, I really respect what you do. I think it's awesome. And, uh, 
you know, we'll stay in touch. And, and if, if, uh, if events weren't, maybe we, maybe I can come back and share some good news with your listeners. We hey, would love that. We would love to have you back. Yeah. Thank you very we much. Looks- very much look forward to it. Everyone, this is Clark Neely, Vice President of Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute, uh, constitutional litigator, and following him on Twitter at Conlaw Warrior. Um, just fantastic guest. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks for your service. Yeah, thank you. Good Have a good night, sir. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. And don't forget to uh, like us on Twitter, on Facebook. Yeah, fuck. Yeah. Come, come to yeah. the website, bullshito.net. We have merchandise for sale. We just got in a new round of shirts uh, this week, I think. Uh, this is my fighting shirt. I do not have one right now because we're practicing distancing. But they are there. Uh, so definitely join us, uh, like us, listen to us, and we will see you on the next podcast. This has been The Art of Fighting the Next.